When I was a kid, I did my very own James Bond movie on Super 8, with me and my friends running around various sets around the block trying to stage a classic spy adventure. It was almost an hour long, had no sound except for a John Barry filled soundtrack, and was obviously not good at all, but fun to make. I'm confident there are thousands, if not millions, of homemade teen versions of James Bond and spy movies around the world, on VHS, 8mm or MP4. The world of international espionage is, after all, never as appealing as for a 14-year-old boy with pimples and limited success with getting seen by his female classmates. In my Bond movie, I played the villain loosely based on Hugo Drax and Moonrake, you know this. But I guess any normal 14-year-old boy would rather play James Bond. Bond. The hero. James Bond. And I guess that plenty of teenagers with a taste for spy movies dream of how it would be to actually be an international spy, battling villains on exotic locations while always looking smart and cool. Luckily, there are books, films and series where they, and we, the slightly older audience, can meet teenagers and get a taste of that life. One of the most successful of these is doubtlessly Alex Ryder, who is recruited by a subdivision of MI6 as a teenage spy in a number of novels by Anthony Horowitz. The first book, Stormbreaker, arrived over 20 years ago, and the first screen adaption was made in 2006. Last year, Alex Ryder returned to our screens, this time played by Otto Ferrant in the Amazon series Alex Ryder. And one year later, a second season arrived. Goodbye Cancer Studios delivered VFX for both season 1 and 2. So how were these effects created? And why do we love spy adventures so much? Well, you'll soon find out. Cause today, the yellow brick road leads to the adventures of Alex Ryder and other spies. Hi everybody, I'm Nils Lag again and welcome back to Yellow Brick Road, a podcast about movies, games and visual effects. And yes, today we're going to dive into the world of espionage and talk about the VFX for Amazon's teen spy series Alex Ryder. Please welcome VFX supervisor Jim Parsons and CG supervisor James Sutton from Goodbye Cancer Studios in London. Welcome guys. Hi. Hello. Nice to have you here. Uh, Jim, uh, you've been with us at Yellow Brick Road before, and I'm sure our listeners already have a good picture of who you are. The VFX supervisor of Vigil and many other great projects at Goodbye Kansas. But James, you haven't been here before, so let's start with some introductions. Uh, how did you find your way into the wonderful world of visual effects? Uh, hi, Nils. Uh, it's great to be here, by the way. Um, so to be honest... I think for me, it was a little bit inevitable that I ended up in visual effects. I kind of had a thought about this recently and um, I was thinking back to kind of my childhood days and I was constantly making kind of, uh, you know, um, stop stop motion animations out of plasticine with a old camcorder. Mm. Um, my brother and I even experimented with sort of some really primitive sort of visual effects uh, with, with this camcorder kind of 
giving the illusion that we were kind of um, magically changing our clothes uh, from, from, from frame <laughs> to frame. So I think quite early on there was sort of, you know, something in the water there that um, perhaps this could be something that we'd do in the future. But, you know, at that time I had no idea what visual effects was, had no idea um, that even that could be something to do as a job. We would, you know, me and my brother were just playing around, having fun at the time. Um, so, you know, that was just kind of fun for those days. Um, you know, then kind of went in, on into school um, and uh, I studied maths, art and geography at school, which was a bit of a strange combination. Uh, the teachers didn't really know what to do with that in terms of offering advice for what careers to do and so on. Um, so I kind of ended up finding myself sort of flicking through university prospectuses, trying to find courses that might fit. Um, eventually I came across uh, the course at Bournemouth, which is the BA in computer visualization and animation, a course that a lot of people um, in visual effects um, uh, have studied uh, over the time. Um, and to be honest, it wasn't really actually the course that I, it was actually the image that was by the course that actually uh, got me interested and stopped at the actual um, at the page. So, you know, it, it's quite interesting that it's, it was a visual, uh, something visual that caught my attention and um, led to me led to me reading that article on um, on that particular course. And, um, you know, really from that moment on, I decided that visual effects was going to be what I was going to do, um, which led me to kind of, uh, you know, 15 years experience um, in visual effects, um, Avatar and Game of Thrones, you know, mm. along the way. Um, I'm, I'm here chatting to you now after all that time. So, <laughs> well, What was on, on the image that, that caught your eye? Do you know after? what? Um, I can't remember. And uh, I was thinking about it earlier and I was thinking it'd be amazing to uh, actually find that prospectus and um, find out whose image that was. Um, mm. I, I imagine it's a kind of a, another graduate's work that they've used to for the article. So um, I should probably do a bit of research and go, go and find yeah. that person and say thank you. <laughs> exactly. It's a, a defining moment. Yeah. Sliding door moment. Maybe you would have, if it would have been another image, you would have ended up somewhere else. Exactly. And that would have been sad because then he wouldn't have been here. So, uh, Alex Ryder. The first season of the series premiered in 2020, uh, adapted by Guy Burt and produced by 11th Hour Films and Sony Pictures Television. And in December 2021, a second season arrived on Amazon. Hello, spy boy. You look like you could use some help. You're in harm's way. This is your life coming apart. They're supposed to be over. We dropped you into the deep end of a world that you're not quite ready for. So who is he, Alex Ryder? Jim? Uh, who is Alex Ryder? <clears throat> He's a teenager. He was brought up by his uncle. Uh, we don't never find out what happened to his parents. Maybe you do in the books. But his mm. uncle uh, taught him a particular set of skills, although didn't tell him why he was doing that. So he's good at... Uh, all kinds of parkour and fighting and jumping and hiding and just like just really good at everything. But he didn't know why. Mm. Then his uncle mysteriously died, and uh, MI6, who like aren't the most morally correct uh, people in the world, according to these these books, 
uh, came and found Alex and decided to use his skills uh, to become a teenage spy. So, uh, you know, uh, being brought up by a probably quite psychotic uncle, uh, would you'd think that Alex would be a bit of a crazy person, but actually he's, uh, he's a regular kind of kid uh, who just wants to do good uh, and also wants to save the world while he's doing it. He's got his best friend, Tom, who kind of grounds him. And then he's kind of nanny, who's this American woman called Jack Starbright. And she's kind of like, hmm, like a big sister rather than a, a mother. But she kind of keeps keeps him under the straight, in the straight and narrow. So, uh, yeah, he's a good guy. Alex, this is your third absence. Where have you been? Your coursework's late. You are slipping behind it with your grades. I just, I've got a lot going on. Uh, and Goodbye Kansas delivered VFX for both season one and two. Uh, did both of you work on both these seasons? Well, I did. Did you work on the first season, James? I can't remember. No, I'm new to the uh, new to the uh, Alex Ryder clan. Season two was my first introduction to the show. Um, I was aware of the first first season, um, working in the same office with other people working on it. Um, Gave a little bit of advice here and there, but actually it was um, Richard Bospicari, um, uh with some help from the Stockholm team that uh, handled the 3D for season one. So so let's start with season one. What kind of effects did Goodwill Cancers create for that season? Uh, the, the, right, the first initial thing which sets off the whole mystery is a, uh, a billionaire in the, in the city uh, going to get a, uh, a lift uh, and as he steps into the lift, he doesn't realise that, in fact, the lift isn't there at all and it's a hologram and he plummets down the lift shaft to his death. So we mm. had to do this shot where he basically walks in, falls down, and then the camera tilts down and then we see him kind of rattling down his body, shattering to pieces as he goes uh, and dies horribly. It was quite a tricky shot because it was all one big shot with the guy walking in and then the camera tilting down and following him. Uh, so that was that was the, the big one on the first episode, but there was lots of little bits. But really, the main thing was the uh, the baddies' evil lair, which was uh, point blank uh, in France, but actually shot in Romania at the top of a mountain at minus twenty degrees, and it was very very cold. Yeah. Uh, and uh, they shot it at this hotel, but we had to replace the hotel with our our, our digital uh, evil lair, which uh, yeah, as uh, James says, Richard did a fantastic job of of building. Uh, mm. And that, that was most of the effects, really, I think. A few other, you know, gunfire here and there and stuff like that. Some explosions. Um, but but that kind of stuff. And and when did you know that, that you would be on board for season two as well? Then? Well, I mean, I'd heard that it was going to be made. Um, but the producer of the first season uh, had left the show uh, anyway. So I wasn't in contact with him. But then I was sitting outside a pub in Brixton um, with my dog and, and some friends and uh, I saw the exec producer Eve uh, Gutierrez walking. I think that's how you say her name. She was walking past with her dog and she saw me and went, we're doing season two. And then she walked off. Uh, at that point, <laughs> I knew that we were involved. <laughs> and uh, when you started working on season two, what kind of effects did you produce? Well... Um, I mean, on the, the comp side of things, at the, in the first episode, a house gets blown up. Uh, they, they couldn't afford to uh, blow up an actual house, which is understandable. Um, so um, w- w- although they kind of set fire to a few little bits here and there, most of it was us adding fire elements and breaking glass and smoke pouring out. 
Um, uh, but then more excitedly, uh, later on, we had to do this whole scene uh, involving uh, some Aztec skeleton warriors uh, who are attacking um, Alex Ryder. This is a very grounded show, you've got to realise, but the, these Aztec killer war- uh, <laughs> skeleton warriors are in it. Uh, they're an augmented reality kind of thing. He can only see them in a headset. Uh, so, so they come along, and then later on, uh, he gets chased by a killer drone who wants to shoot him and his friends. So. Wow. Killer drones. That, that sounds very... Let's start with the killer drones. How did you create those? Well, like anything, it starts with um, some good some good references and concepts. Um, in this case, Jim, I think you uh, put together some rather lovely concept for the drone. Uh... In, yeah, indeed. I mean, like, because Alex Ryder is, is like a lot of British shows, isn't, isn't the biggest budget in the world. Although it was done digitally, we did approach it in a kind of... Um, we started off with a real-life drone that actually exists... Uh, and and then you know adapted that and stuck a dirty great big Gatling gun under the underneath it. Uh, but I mean, it kind of it, it, because it was based on something that we've already kind of you know something that really is real. It kind of it mm. harks back to kind of traditional um, special effects and stuff like like Slave One, which is Boba Fett's um, uh, ship in Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Terrible name for a, uh, a ship, uh, but uh, that's based on a kind of an old lamp. You know, the, they just got this funny-looking lamp and then they, they added metal plates onto it to, to create the model. So I kind of feel mm. that we were kind of following that tradition. I know the Empire Strikes Back had a bigger budget, but it was still that kind of using what you can find to kind of create, like, the, the, the kind of various different machines and stuff like that. Um, so, yeah, that's basically what we did, really, is we made up some concepts using an original drone and uh, add guns. So they never had any, like, practical drone. For, for when they shot it, well, they it. did. They did have practical. They had practical drones to shoot a lot of the plates, uh, to shoot shots from the point of view of the drone, but also from behind the drone. Even though there wasn't actually a drone there, uh, and um, but there was also another little tiny drone flying around the, uh, the the location, which was often used as eye line uh, and for extra kind of point of view shots and, and stuff. So we'd have to remove that and then add in our our, our digital one over the top of that. So, yeah, some drones, yeah. The challenge for us in 3D was, uh, like Jim said, we had kind of this kind of overall um, sort of uh, standard sort of um, drone that was kind of our basis that we then had to kind of functionally attach this Gatling gun to. Um, So, you know, we went through quite a few rounds of actually how the mechanism would be attached to, to, to the drone itself. Um, that was the kind of challenge for 3D in terms of just making sure that um, visually the, the the drone kind of um, sat true and sat in some sort of reality. Um, two with the two with the materials as well that we were we used on the drone. We had to make sure that um, across the whole drone that it had a design language that actually kind of bedded it in reality and kind of um, gave it that authenticity that we were we were mm. after. Um, and I mean, since since there's a gun on it, uh, did you also create the, the when it was shooting? I mean, when it hit stuff and stuff like that, did you do those effects as well? Well, it's very much um, a collaboration between 3D and 2D. This 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 project, and particularly from the drone point of view, um, from a 3D point of view, we we took care of uh, creating the hard surface drone itself. Um, 
rendered rendered those out um to comp but actually comp took care of the finer details of um kind of gatling gun shells um tracer fire and um laser you know there's a laser pointer on it as well i think a few other things jim as well uh puffs of smoke and things like that yeah and and like well without giving too much away what happens to the drone but uh yeah it it, it causes quite a lot of damage um uh to wherever it's flying because it's trying to shoot everything um and uh and quite a lot of damage happens to itself and yeah that was that was a, a good combination of compound and 3d to kind of create that effect i mean it it's it starts out um chasing them across a field um and there was some uh live action um special effects of of like uh, bullet hits uh of the field blowing up but they kind of like you know they only could do that to a certain extent um and then when it goes inside this uh, big industrial greenhouse at that point they couldn't fire anything or blow up anything anyway so then we really did have to add in our our, our visual effects onto kind of like various bullet hits and stuff like that but, and then we have th- that Aztec warrior. Uh, that sure sounds like fun. Uh, tell me about the process. How did you come up with the look and, and everything? Um, yeah, so the Aztec warrior um, is, is actually the, the build itself was a collaboration with um, the Swedish office. Um, obviously, they have a good heritage of creatures and and uh, animation. Um, we started with uh, obviously like, like any like like any asset that you would with some really good concept. Um, Raf Morant from our concept department put us some uh, concepts together with 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 Jim. I, I wasn't part of the show at that point, Jim. Um, obviously, if you could tell us a bit about that, maybe. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, because it's um, uh, like I've said, uh, Alex White is quite a grounded reality based show, but this is uh, augmented reality. And so they 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 wanted the um the, the characters of the skeletons to be um uh kind of fierce but also video game like at, at the same time. So they had to be kind of scary but not be um so real that that you feel you could actually kind of touch them. Uh so mm. so we did a lot of kind of research starting uh you know all the way back using old Aztecian kind of uh imagery and uh, and and the like for the for the costume. Uh, but also using stuff like characters out of like Mortal Kombat games and Killer Instinct, where they have similar kind of like looks to them, uh, so that we we could use that as a kind of reference point to to build up our character because it it we never wanted it to be too real. It always had to have a a, a game element to it because the, the, one of the main plot points of the whole show is that there's this video game being created, which is really evil and bad stuff's going to happen, but. Uh, that that had to kind of feed into that had to feed into the characters that we were creating, um, uh, and, and, and yeah, I think they were, they went pretty well. But we also had to have in mind that we had to be able to animate them, light them, and put them in the shot. So they they the, their ambition had to be confined to within the point that we knew that we could we could do it within the time and the money and the all the usual stuff. Yeah, so so they were totally digital then. Yeah. And then key animated. Or... We uh, Goodbye Kansas has a really great um, uh, motion capture studio. However, because we were in London and we uh, and it was all the pandemic, we weren't able to travel over there to use that at all. So we had to go for an alternative option, which was uh, three men, two dancers, and one stuntman uh, dressed in green outfits, and they performed on uh, on on the set. 
so that uh, uh, Otto, who plays Alex uh, Ryder, he was able to uh, have reference to who he could aim at. We filmed the uh, the, the men, the, the dancers, uh, in their suits. Uh, we filmed them with the, the cameras, which were obviously being used there anyway, and also a couple of witness cam- cameras. Uh, and then we were able to roto anim the uh, their movements and use that as the basis for the animation of the skeleton warriors. Really successful process, though, wasn't it? It was, yeah. We managed to, yeah, as Jim was saying, we um, we kind of did uh, roto anim pass for each each of the selects that um, that, that were performed by the actors. Um, we created a, uh, a a custom rig for to send to, to, to for match move, um, a simplified rig. Um, of our Aztec warrior rig, um, it, it, it made it really easy for us to then transfer the animation from one rig to the other. So once the once the uh, roto anim was signed off, we just transferred that animation to our Aztec warrior rig. Um, it, it's something that was developed by um, um, by Joe Joe Arnold and um, Fred McLeod here at GBK London, and. Uh, once that um, animation was then um, put onto our animation rig, it just required a little bit of cleanup um, and some extra animation for the costumes that we that we that we put on the characters. Um, it probably got us through about seventy percent of the animation on the on the sequence, so it really was quite effective um, that approach. Yeah, and then we had um, uh, Stefan Linda. Uh, uh, of course, from uh, from Stockholm, and he did a little polish on a, a lot of the shots. He, he added extra little bits of character to the um, to the to the creatures, uh, to, even if it's just little things like putting hands on hips or laughing or uh, kind of mm. moving their fingers while they're preparing to shoot their bow and arrows at Alex. They shoot bow and arrows, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, yeah, it was a really successful technique. In fact, and we never doubted it would be. When I, whenever I hear, hear someone say dead Aztec warrior, I think of that scary Raskar Kapak mummy from Tintin and the Seven Crystal Balls. Uh, have you seen that or read that? It's, it scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, Tintin isn't that big in the UK as it is in the rest of Europe. Uh, mm. Although, um, you know, I did uh, look up the chap, but not until afterwards. And he does look uncannily like what we what we came up with. Um, so uh, is that a coincidence or had it fed into our minds when we did see a bit of Tintin when we were were kids? I don't know. Certainly uh, my first thought, and I'm sure a lot of people's, would have been the skeletons out, Jason and the Argonauts, um, or in Ah, fact, uh, yeah, the Ray Harryhausen one, which, uh, I mean, Ray Harryhausen surely hangs over most um, artists in this world uh, as a kind of, as a god to look up to. Uh, with his yeah. spectacular skeletons and all the other work that he's done, um, so yeah, I mean certainly that and Army of Darkness as well, with all the uh, the skeleton army in that, um, all, mm. all, all comes to mind. Uh, and you know they have they are infused with so much character, and we want to try and get a bit of that in into our little scene, even though it's a relatively quick scene. We still wanted to do, uh, you know it to be memorable and have memorable yeah. creatures. Yeah, for me, Jason and the Argonauts was definitely sort of. On the list, um, more, more, more as a point of view of maybe this is our little nod to to, to that work rather than necessarily direct reference. But um, nice to think that you know we can follow in sort of footsteps in some way um, with this sort of work. And it was nice to to feel like that while we were doing it. 
Um, I think in terms of reference, we were, you know, as many as, as many productions, um, we end up with lots of reference boards and mood boards of um, to kind of um, guide artists um, with the brief. And, it, you know, for the for the uh, skeleton warrior itself, we ended up with some pretty gruesome, uh, <laughs> gruesome mood boards <laughs> of um, petrified mummies and decaying bodies. So um not usual sort of uh um bedtime reading really that sort of stuff no but i guess that's also a beauty of this industry that that, that you get to create so many different kind of things like killer drones and dead aztec warriors it's it's amazing uh do you have a favorite vfx shot from alex already i do yes which one is it well, it is. Uh, it's one of the. Um, uh, it's one of the uh, skeleton warriors ones. Because um, uh, the, the there's there's kind of rules that uh, of logic that the game uh, that Alex is playing has. He can only see them with his glasses on. Uh, he's wearing a, a, a suit, so that when he gets uh, uh, hit, he feels the pain from them, and it, and it all follows this kind of strong logic. Uh, and then occasionally he gets hit with bolts of lightning out of a machine in the ceiling. And then for no reason whatsoever, the, uh, the, the one of the uh, Aztec uh, skeleton warriors becomes a giant and then shoots lightning out of his eyeballs straight at Alex Ryder. And it's like, well, how is that? Doesn't make any sense at all. And, and, uh, and Rebecca Catwood, who's the director of this block, she was like, I don't care. It's cool. And really, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes go with cool over reality because uh, it's, it's it's a highlight for me it's a brilliant shot i love that bit yeah. so yours is that shot where where the the lightning bolts come out of the eyes is that what you're saying yeah cheesy but good okay well <laughs> mine's mine's also from the same sequence um and mine happens to be i mean there's lots of great there's lots of great shots in the in the in, this, in the um in the series but um mine is got to be there's this one shot where um Alex Ryder is getting into a rhythm of killing these um Aztec warriors um and it kind of climaxes in one shot where he shoots three in succession and um it happens really quite quickly and as a standalone shot maybe maybe it doesn't kind of amount to that but much but in 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 the rest of the sequence it's really quite a, a moment where he's really getting into a good rhythm and it's like pop 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 and these kind of <laughs> uh, we haven't said much about the effect and i don't know if we can say too much about the effect but um basically uh, the, the the characters kind of digitize into into cubes that fall to the ground um and that that happens three in succession and it's really quite satisfying just to see them pop one after the other um i've spent a bit of time watching that on loop to be honest it's quite satisfying <laughs> that's nice so, speaking of of spies and and spy movies and series, do you have a favorite spy movie or a spy series? And uh, it doesn't have to be a teenage spy. Oh, good, because um, uh, there aren't that many of them, I don't think. Um, yeah, I do, and it's a little bit like you wouldn't necessarily think that it's uh, a spy movie, um, but it's Alfred Hitchcock's nineteen thirty eight, The Lady Vanishes. But she wasn't the lady I saw. It was Miss Freud. And. Um, uh, it was his last movie that he did in the UK before uh, travelling to Hollywood and finding uh, fame and glory um, uh, as one of the greatest directors ever. And um, it's about this woman uh, and she's on a train in some European 
country that is never quite explained. And she talks to this lovely little old lady called Miss Froy. Uh, and then they go through a tunnel and, or does she fall asleep? I don't know. Anyway, Miss Froy disappears. The lady vanishes. Uh, mm. And then so uh, Margaret Lockwood, she's um, trying to find out what happened to this old lady. And then she meets up with Michael Redgrave, uh, who she thinks is a terrible ass. And, uh, and, and then there's a whole mystery to solve. Well, it turns out, I'm ruining it for you now, but if you haven't seen a film from 1938 now, forget it. Uh, it Miss, Miss Froy is a spy for Britain trying to bring back information back to, uh, uh, back to the UK from, uh, from the uh, Germans. Obviously, this is made in 1938, so just before the uh, Second World War broke out. Uh, and yeah. there's an underlying hint about how uh, we need to be wary of Germans. Uh, which was like a message which uh, Alfred Hitchcock did try to kind of push quite a lot in those years leading up to the war um, and even uh, during it. Um, and uh, it's just a brilliant film. It's kind of, it's a spy movie. It's a thriller. It's a comedy. It's a romance. It's even got a little elements of horror in it near the beginning when somebody gets strangled. And um, uh, it, I just love it, really. I've watched it a multitude of times and uh, it's just great seeing ridiculous British people being foolish. Why are you in here? This is the most serious accident case. You have no business to be here at all, neither of you. Dr. Hartz, we want you to undo those bandages and let us take a look at your patient's face. It's one of my favourite films. It's not just my, one of my favourite spy films. It's one of my favourite films. Uh, it's a classic for sure. Uh, you, James, do you have a favourite spy? I can't say I have a particular favourite spy um, series. Um, I do enjoy the kind of more gritty sort of rogue assassin type thrillers um mm. you know that usually they're uncovering the corruption you know within the agency um there's usually like a kind of a realism about the characters you know the action sequences are kind of usually quite raw and very physical um i guess they can be considered some of them sort of popcorn flick um mm. sort of movies like the early born movies and um you know uh the Daniel Craig, some of the the Daniel Craig, the earlier ones, had that sort mm. of flavour where they're a bit more gritty and raw, and less po- less about the polish. Um, certainly, um, a particular favourite of mine, which is sort of more leaning towards this kind of genre, would be the would be uh, Hannah, um, starring Sasha Ronan, um, directed by Joe Wright. Uh, I mean, I remember being captivated from start to finish with that movie. Um, uh hannah she plays like uh, a trained um assassin well her, her her father is a trained assassin and she kind of he kind of trains her up um uh you know through the movie she, she you know she kicks ass throughout the whole movie and uh display, displays like extreme resilience um with all the challenges that she's faced in that movie um mm-hmm. i kind of yeah I, I remember that being quite captivated by that film um i guess that's the closest i can get to the spy genre, but um, certainly um, enjoy those films. I'll do better next time. Tell me again. Adapt or die. Think on your feet. Even when I'm sleeping, I'm ready. All you have to do is flip that switch. It tells me it's the regular where we are. Only you can get close enough. She won't stop until you're dead. Or she is. Come and find me. I like that film too. Uh, I have a weakness for, for spy films or films in general that, that are set in a kind of like Europe off season, so to say. So, it, so it's in the autumn or something like that. And I have a vague memory that, that, that Hannah is partly set in Germany, isn't it? It starts in Finland and then. Starts like, in I Finland think. and then, yeah, yeah, in Germany, yes. Yeah, it's very wintry. 
very wintry. Uh, my, I have a, a special favorite is, is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy for me. Thomas Alfredson's lovely film with Gary Oldman. Uh, but otherwise, I, I have uh, my guilty pleasure of, uh, <laughs> of the Harry Palmer films with Michael Caine from the 60s. And especially the last one, uh, the last proper Palmer film, uh, The Billion Dollar Brain from 1967, directed by Ken Russell. It's totally bonkers. English, how good to see you! <laughs> it's the first time I've ever had a Russian spy on room service. Uh, have you seen that? Well, I mean, unfortunately, uh, like a lot of Ken Russell films, it's you can't get hold of it. Uh, it's not mm. available to stream anywhere. There's an old DVD that you can pick up, and I think there's a Blu-ray in Spain. But uh, other than that, uh, it, it's not available. I mean, I, I've seen some of it quite a few years ago. Ken Russell was an odd choice to make that film, though, wasn't he, really? Because, uh, you know... Very strange choice. Yeah, because, yeah. like, if you think of, like, The Ipris File, which is the mm. first of those Harry Palmer films, it's very gritty... London-based, and, like, he's just, like, a man who's doing his job and he's not really appreciated for his job. Uh, mm. And, and you know, there, there's a realism to it. And and Funeral in Berlin, which is the second film, again, it's a similar kind of feel, but obviously set in Berlin. Um, mm. And then the third one, you've got, well, let's get Ken Russell to do it. I mean, I know he's not actually directed <laughs> a feature film before, but he went on to do, like, you know, Lay of the White Worm, uh, where Amanda Donahoe uh, seduces a, a, a scout, a boy scout, which is weird. She's a vampire, so it's kind of fair enough. I'm not going to bite you. Uh, and The Devils, which is an amazing film, and again, another film which you couldn't see for years by Ken Russell. Yeah, with Oliver Reed dying, at, burned at the stake. Burned at the stake, yeah. yeah. I know, it wasn't the most uh, positive film about the church, I have to say. Um, no. <laughs> so, yeah, certainly an odd choice. It's it's kind of like, it, it kind of reminds me of, like, you know, when George Lucas wanted to get David Lynch to direct, direct Return of the Jedi. You know, it's like that kind of weird <laughs> choice. Why would you Why would you do that? But, you know, they did. Yeah. And we're, we're, it's, the world is better for it, I suppose. I love my country, and my dream is to make a thing I love strong. Strong! 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 Last but not least... What are you working on right now? And uh, is it anything you can share or is everything very hush-hush, like in the spy world? Um, yeah, I can share a little bit of, about what I'm, what I'm working on now. Um, so I've started working on a series called The Rig. Uh, it's a disaster story set um, on an oil rig out in the North Sea. Um, mm. It has some rather ambitious 3D environment work. Um, it's a huge... Um, grubby metal structure, an oil rig out in the sea. Um, we have some interesting pyro effects and um, it will include a lot of uh, ocean interaction. Um, mm. Super excited to be part of that project, but there's not really much more I can say about that at this time. We'll have to wait and do a, a special episode of the podcast when that day comes, yeah. perhaps. And then I, uh, well, I just finished the latest season of Outlander, which continues to be uh, a great show uh, with lots of interesting work on that. Uh, and then now I'm on Jack Ryan, which, of course, is a another spy show. So, uh, yeah. You know. So you, you feel you're starting to, like, get into just doing spy things. I mean, Vigil was also, in a sense, a spy story, wasn't it? Yeah. 
And that was a lot of uh, underwater and water-based stuff in Vigil, obviously. Uh, and mm. uh, all the stuff I'm doing on Jack Ryan is also set at sea. So there you go. <laughs> Spies and water. That's my thing. <laughs> Spies and water. <laughs> uh, it was a pleasure chatting with you. Looking forward to chatting with you again about these other projects in the future. Thanks a lot for coming to Yellowbrick Road and welcome back. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. And you out there, thanks for listening. Feel free to reach out to us at podcast at goodbyecancers.com. Until next time, goodbye, à bientôt, auf Wiederhören, wie hörsch.